As Jeff, Pastor Jeff indicated, we're looking at a series, going through a series, I am a church member. Some years ago, one morning when I was at this, working at the study of the church, I was alerted by a telephone call that I was urgently needed at the home of a church member. And when I arrived at the distraught couple's home, I discovered that the young husband had become aware just that morning that his wife was involved in an adulterous affair. And therefore, in the midst of the palpable and intense pain, there was shouting, there was anger, there was deep venting and frustration in that home in that the early morning. And after spending some hours with them, I realized that it was safe for me to leave, and I drove to my home. And while driving through town, I became, slowly became aware of the beauty of the spring day and how persons in town were going about their daily responsibilities and their daily activities, and everything seemed so normal compared to what I had just witnessed. Life seemed normal, with kids going back to school, people working, going to work, or going about their daily chores. And this was very jarring, this scene of beauty and springtime juxtaposed with the picture of pain and anger and chaos and disorder that I had experienced with this young couple as I sat with them trying to make sense of what they were dealing with. Pastors are called on to deal with situations that exact an emotional toll. And in your bulletin, if you care to, you can take notes, you can fill in the blanks, and that is the first one. Uh, Inside the bulletin, there's a, a page that's indicated as message notes. So pastors are called on to deal with difficult situations that take an emotional toll. And this can leave the pastor spent and drained. Tom Rainier, in the book, I Am a Church Member, that we're using as a basis for this series, he tells the story of Pastor Mike, who was working on his sermon in the study. And as he was working on the sermon, he received a call and was called to the emergency room of the hospital where a church member, a family of five, was involved in a car accident. And when Pastor Mike came to the hospital, he had just learned that they had been informed that their husband and father did not survive the accident. So he, Pastor Mike ministered to the family for three hours as they attempted to recover 
from the initial shock of getting that word that their husband, father, was gone. Pastor Mike's day, after spending that time with the family, those three hours, was consumed with people in crises and all the other things, all the other commitments that he had scheduled for that day that needed to be fit in, in addition to this unscheduled event of needing to minister to this family that just experienced the loss of the husband father. Finally, after a commitment at a ball game and leading in prayer and then talking to some persons, finally, after 9 p.m., he arrives at his home and he goes to the small study in his home and he shuts the door and he begins to release his emotions. He begins to cry. Gary Godsey, the man who was killed in the car wreck, was Pastor Mike's best friend. And after a number of hours, spending a large part of the day ministering to the needs of others, now finally at 9 p.m., he is able to express his grief that he too had suffered a major loss in that his best friend had just been killed in the automobile wreck. There are many reasons to pray for your pastors. There are many reasons to pray for your church leaders. And one reason is that, moving on to the next section, one reason is that research has indicated that many clergy do not do a good job of caring for themselves. That indeed many clergy show a lack of self-care. Roy Oswald, who was an author and a former worker of the Alban Institute when that was a resource for clergy and churches, Roy says, quote, Perhaps clergy have fallen into the trap of being so concerned for their congregations and members of their professional life and demands of their professional life that they have neglected to care for their personal lives, specifically physical health. End quote. So when a clergy person is approaching burnout, Recreation and exercise are some of the first things, some of the first activities to be dropped in the schedule. A national study of more than 2,500 religious leaders, now this was conducted 12 years ago, back in 2004. And this was conducted by an organization called Pulpit and Pew. And they found that 76% of Christian clergy were overweight or obese, compared with 61% of the general population. 76% of Christian clergy, overweight or obese, in the two different categories. Now, there are many times at the end of a meeting where we've had intense discussions 
and I will be both physically and mentally exhausted. And one author stated that clergy do not get enough exercise, and one of the reasons the clergy don't get enough exercise is they drive to the church, they drive to the, to the hospital, and then they drive to the homes of their parishioners to pay a visit with them. And Paul writes, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he says, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. So we keep ourselves holy as we keep a balance of these three areas of life, our spirit and our soul and our body, spirit, mind, and body. As we keep those aspects in balance, we maintain health and wholeness. Robert Lundgren suggests that there are six elements of self-care of proper self-care, adequate sleep, relaxation, recreation, exercise, and proper nutrition and proper weight. And the fact that many clergy do not take time for adequate exercise leads to the dismal statistic that there are more, the percentage of overweight and obese clergy is even higher than the general population, and I would refer to that as indeed a, an indicting and dismal statistic uh, on behalf of clergy. Dr. Gwen Halas, a family physician who is the project director of ministerial health and wellness program for the Evangelical Church Evangelical Lutheran Church of America suggests, she suggests, quote, that the role of pastor has become a more difficult job with fewer rewards and all those things add to stress and take a toll on health. Larger social trends, she says, like the aging and shrinking of congregations, the dwindling availability of volunteers in the era of two-income households also spur some ministers to push themselves beyond their limits, end quote. So indeed, at this time in our society, at this time in the life of the church, we might describe and we might say that we live in a kind of a messy time, a stressful time. Dr. Mary Honstead, a psychologist and pastor's wife, suggested that pastors need to have an interesting personal life so that they will not be tempted to cross ethical boundaries. And then she talks about a wise elder psychologist who at the time was 
chair of the Ethics Committee of the Minnesota Psychological Association, and she found that the, healthy, that the helping professionals who stepped over ethical lines often did not have lives apart from their clinical practice, end of quote. So it's important to pray for your pastors that they would have an interesting and exciting and a life apart from their work, apart from the role of just being clergy. And clergy work in the context of society where most Protestant workers are deeply rooted in the Protestant work ethic. And I would suggest that that's true, especially in Lancaster County, where making money and getting ahead are unstated cultural values. Ellen Goodman writes that Americans, quote, have notoriously fewer vacation days than workers in any other industrialized company, industrialized nation, end of quote. Fewer vacation time. And according to an Expedia poll, and I have this on the PowerPoint, one out of five workers said they feel guilty taking vacation. So in the midst of this, clergy pastors are working in this driven culture. So clergy also need to be encouraged to take adequate vacation time. It's rather unusual that I made that slip in the bulletin. I wasn't trying to say that I need a whole month of vacation. But I did suggest to one person that perhaps it was a Freudian slip that I put it in there. Clergy need to get away from the incessant demands of the details and also the calls from the, from the hospital and the unexpected calls from the funeral home indicating that the need for pastoral services. Therefore, it's important to pray for your pastoral staff who are involved in carrying out the responsib their responsibilities in fulfilling the tasks that are part of their role. And one of the responsibilities of church members is to pray for the pastoral staff as they equip the members for ministry in the community. And so, as we anticipate, as we anticipate a transition in pastoral leadership in this congregation, it is an opportunity to pledge yourself anew to pray for your new lead pastor. It's an opportunity to support and assist the new person as this person becomes acquainted with you and acquainted with the workings and the culture of this particular congregation. And as that new person is involved in the life and the ministry of the congregation, to be a praying congregation praying in particular for the ministry and praying for the pastoral leadership. With that, I'd like to turn then to the scripture as Paul calls the believers to prayer on Paul's behalf, reading from Romans 15, 30 to 33. 
and this is on the PowerPoint, and once again I've asked my wife Anna to uh, read that passage. Romans 15, 30 to 33. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Thank you, Anna. It's interesting to note that here in this passage in Romans, Paul is inviting the Romans to pray for him. Paul, with all his training and experience as a church planter, his experience as an equipper, called for the believers in Rome to pray for him. He did not waver from calling on those who were part of the faith to put that faith into action, to use that faith to pray for him. And in verse 30 from the New RSV, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf. And the Greek word for appeal is the same word that Paul uses back in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we studied in our Sunday school lesson just, just the other week, where Paul is, in, is saying he appeals to them that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So Paul invites them that he might be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and the fellow Jews who Paul was afraid would reject the gospel or who have rejected the gospel and would also reject him and reject the offering that he was taking to the sisters and brothers in Jerusalem that they would not accept him and would not accept his offering. That was Paul's fear. So Paul is inviting the, the believers at Rome to join him in prayer for himself. He was not afraid to ask them to exercise their faith, to pray for him as the apostle. So from this example, from this example of a call to prayer, we learn that we can pray for specific situations, that we're called on to pray for specific things, problems, challenges that we're dealing with, that we're facing in our life, in our ministry, in our work. So Paul invites the believers to bring specific situations to God in prayer. Persons of faith, to exercise their faith as they bring this situation to God. Let's turn then to look at another passage of scripture that is referred to, that Tom Rainier, Rainier refers to in his book, and that is from 2 Timothy, beginning with verse 2. And again, Anna will read this passage. 
Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Okay, thank you, Anna. Paul begins the section with a truism, with a saying that was evidently well known at the time, that whoever, and this saying was, whoever aspires to the office of bishop, or some uh, translators say overseer, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. And so the, this word overseer or bishop refers to supervisor, and in fact, Jesus is the same word is used, uh, Peter uses this word to refer to Jesus as in 1 Peter 2.25, Peter says that Jesus is the bishop and guardian, translated there, the bishop and guardian of our souls. So Paul in this passage, in his passage to his son in the faith, Timothy, lists 15 virtues 15 virtues that need to be found in the life of a leader, in the life of a bishop or overseer. And in this passage also, Paul assumes that overseers are men. And in that day, it was the men who were involved in interacting in the public sphere in the public world, and the women's sphere was at home. They were involved in their own private sphere. But, as David Stevens points out, and this is on the PowerPoint, by no means does 1 Timothy 3 close the discussion on women in leadership. In fact, the weight of evidence in the New Testament is clearly favorable to women in leadership. There are many examples of Christian women exercising all kinds of leadership. These include Philip's four daughters who were prophets, the evangelist Priscilla, the Philippian leaders Iodia and Syntyche, and the Corinthian apostle Junius. End quote. It's interesting to notice also that the church leader must be above reproach and must be in a position where there are no character flaws that the enemy can use to tear the leader down. J.N.B. Kelly quotes, he should present no obvious defect of character or conduct in his past or present life which the malicious, whether within or without the church, can exploit to his discredit, end quote. 
Paul goes on to say to Timothy that the church leader must be married only once. In other words, he is saying that the church leader must show fidelity within the marriage covenant because infidelity destroys the marriage and not only destroys the marriage, it also destroys the trust that is necessary for church leadership. And then Paul lists a number of other virtues that I won't take time to discuss each one, but he lists temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not violent but uh, gentle. He must also manage his own household well. It's also interesting to note that Paul includes a measure from outside the church. In verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he might not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. So Paul assumes here, as he's writing this to Timothy and sharing these 15 verses, virtues, Paul assumes that the church leader, the bishop, the overseer, overseer, will have interaction and regular interaction with the outsiders. And that these outsiders must speak well of him. Again, quoting David Stevens. That is, the opinion from outside the church has bearing on his qualification to serve inside the church. It is assumed that the candidate interacts regularly and widely with the non-church community. Surprisingly, insider assessments are not enough to determine eligibility for this leadership role, end quote. I just find that very, very fascinating and interesting that in order to be called and to be worthy to be called and to, be, and to fulfill this virtue, that one also must be spoken well of and considered highly by outsiders and have connections with the outside community. So I close then by asking, what are the takeaways from this sermon and what can we learn? I will pray for our pastors and church leaders because, and that could be a pledge that we could take, as Tom Rainier suggests, that he actually gives pledges at the end of, of each section. So I will pray for our pastors and church leaders because pastors are called to minister in intense and emotionally draining situations. And number two, to our chagrin, we need to confess that Many pastors have not practiced healthy self-care and have sacrificed their physical, emotional, and spiritual health for the sake of their ministry to others. And then thirdly, this, that we, this letter from Paul to Timothy, I think we would agree that the qualifications and moral characteristics for church leaders in 1 Timothy 3 are indeed high, that we need to come to a particular standard. And therefore, we need to pray that our pastoral staff, that our pastors will be able to fulfill those, those characteristics.
So in conclusion, will you and I, will we take five minutes per day to pray for our church leaders and our pastors? Will we pledge to remember our family and their, their families and in prayer and to be intercessors? And an intercessor is one who stands in the gap between the people and God. And to pray in particular for our pastors. And then to emphasize once again as I retire and as this congregation then chooses a new lead pastor, it is indeed, and I'll just say it as clearly as I can, it's indeed your responsibility to pray on behalf of the search team. And it's your responsibility to pray and intercede on behalf of the person that even now God is calling. I just heard a testimony of a new pastor who came into this area into one of the churches in our district, and he was saying how he felt as he interviewed early on, he didn't sense the calling, but it was only as time went by that he sensed the calling to this congregation and where he has now been called. And so I believe that God indeed is involved, that God indeed is, as it were, finding a person for this congregation to serve as a lead pastor. And then as a candidate is invited to fill the role of each of lead pastor, I challenge each of you to pray every day for that new pastor and the family. Tom Rainier, I close with this quote. Tom Rainier says, quote, few families face the kinds of pressures and expectations as the families of pastors, end of quote. Let me read that again. Few families face the kinds of pressures and expectations as the families of pastors, end of quote. I'll ask the praise team to come forward to lead us in a closing song. <laughs>